After a breathtaking episode on Othello last season, Ayanna Thompson is back to talk about her book Blackface, which is a part of our object lesson series. Ayanna Thompson is a Regents Professor of English and Director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Arizona State University. She has authored several books on Shakespeare with Bloomsbury and is currently collaborating with Curtis Perry on the Arden Four edition of Titus Andronicus. In this episode, we discuss the events that drove Ayanna to write this book, the history of blackface up to the 21st century, how media weaponizes the notion of white innocence in contemporary examples of blackface, and much, much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking to Ayana Thompson, the author of Blackface, a book in our object lesson series. We also had Ayana on in season one to discuss her work on Othello for the Art and Shakespeare series, and it honestly is still one of the best interviews I've ever had on the show. So I highly recommend everyone tune into that if you haven't already. And thank you so much for coming back on the show, Ayana. I'll pay you later, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> for real, though, I like walked away from our last conversation just completely mind blown. And you're an incredible speaker. So oh, thanks. Thanks. It's kind of easy to do when you're passionate about your work. So I'm passionate about ending blackface. So let's get into it. <laughs> let's get into it. The way that I normally start is by asking authors what their impetus for writing their book was. But I think in this case, the best way to do that is by you reading us a little excerpt from the book. Yeah, I think this addresses your question perfectly. So this is from the first chapter in Blackface. When my son Dash was in the third grade from 2011 to 2012, he attended a private school that prided itself on its academic rigor. In fact, each eight-year-old student was required to do a year-long research project on an influential person in history. As the culmination of their research, the kids had to make a poster that highlighted their person's life and accomplishments and then dress up as their person and answer questions as if they were the famous person during the poster presentation. It was a lot of work, and the presentations were impressive. That year, there were astronauts and entertainers, politicians and athletes, humanitarians and playwrights. And there were also several little white children in full blackface makeup. They were Martin Luther King Jr., Serena Williams, and Arthur Ashe. Looking at the posters and interacting with the famous historical people, I was stunned when I saw the first blacked up child. Attempting to keep my face neutral, I asked questions about Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and praised the student for her hard work. It was clear that she had immense respect and reverence for Dr. King. He was her hero. She beamed through her blacked up face, proud to be him. I stared on in an attempt not to register my horror and dismay. After taking this in, I immediately went to find the school's principal to ask what was happening. Was makeup allowed? Encouraged? Did the teachers facilitate this? Were the parents involved? What conversations had they had about cross-racial impersonation, even if this all occurred under the auspices of hero worship? The principal seemed not to understand what I was saying. 
that the children's performances were veering dangerously close to blackface. He seemed confused, indicated that he thought I was making a tempest in a teapot. I could see in his eyes that he was reading me as an irrationally angry black woman. And then he asked, what is blackface minstrelsy anyway? And Rebecca, just to, <laughs> just to keep you shocked, I feel like I'm having PTSD because my daughter, who is eight years younger than my son, is in the fifth grade this year. And next week, they're doing their wax museum presentations in which they also have to embody their heroes. And I'm really, really hoping there are no blacked up children in her class. Is it the same school? No, it's a different school. <laughs> I can imagine why you wouldn't want to enroll your other kid in that school after that experience. <laughs> yeah. So in the moment, talking to the principal, I was so kind of shocked that he a, didn't know our American history. Like he's an educator at a private school. I know he has graduate education behind him. I was like, why is it that it's my job to tell him about our American history? And this has been sitting with me for all of these years. And then last summer with the racial reckoning that we were all experiencing in the wake of all of the murders of unarmed Black individuals, including George Floyd, but all the others. I mean, the list is just too long to name. But in that moment, I thought, okay, now I need to write this book. And I wrote it quite quickly in, in what I describe as a fever pitch, because it was like this thing that had been sitting on my back all these years. Do you feel like what was happening in the world, were you responding to it in real time through the book? Yes. I think I had started writing it a couple of weeks before the murder of George Floyd, but I distinctly remember right in the middle that he was killed. And I thought, right, this book that in some ways had been treated by several magazine editors. I had approached a couple of magazine editors with an idea about writing a public-facing piece about blackface. And they kept telling me that it wasn't timely enough. <laughs> so I think in the, like, I didn't know how to respond to them just as I didn't know how to respond to the principal in the moment. But I realized at the moment when I was writing the book and George Floyd is murdered and we're having our moment of like racial reckoning, I was like, right, that was white supremacy talking when they're telling me it's not timely to talk about blackface, even though in the book, I go through a litany of 21st century examples. In fact, most of the examples in the book come from the 21st century. We're only in 2021. So that's not like a lot of years <laughs> to have a history of blackface, but there were so many. And so I realized like that was really propelled me like, to kind of make this conversation at the forefront and to force people to realize what's wrong with the response by saying, oh, it's not timely to talk about blackface. Maybe you have to wait until there's another example of a politician who's outed. That's a white supremacist stance. Absolutely. And I want to get into it later, but I think, ironically, it happens a lot in liberal spaces. Yes. It's not just happening. It's not this idea of like somebody from the KKK putting on blackface. This is happening on network television. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that I think might surprise people is that, for example, 30 Rock, written yes. by Tina Fey, there were four episodes, four episodes of 30 Rock that employed blackface. 
that's like a liberal bastion show, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it's this sort of poster child for liberal, like Hollywood. Yeah. You know, I'm not the first person to comment on this, so I don't want to take credit, but it clearly was related to the zeitgeist in the U.S. in particular in that moment when President Barack Obama was elected president. And there was this kind of collective feeling like, oh, like if you were on the the left, like, yay, we finally did it. Look how much progress we've made. And part of the progress was then to feel like, okay, we're not as racist as we thought we were. And if you were a comedian, that opened up all these avenues for comedy that had been taboo for a while. One, using the N-word and two, employing blackface and comic routines. I document how often blackface was used in late night television in the 21st century. And you were just as likely to encounter a blackface performance as you were to encountering an actor of color. Like, that's pretty shocking. I'm not a TV scholar. I'm not a scholar of television. So apologies to my brothers and sisters who are. But I did like a rough tabulation of who I knew was on television at the time. And there were so many examples of blackface that it was almost one-to-one, the numbers of blackface performances as there were actors of color who were featured on these late night shows. Wow, that is absolutely horrifying. And it's also just being hidden in plain sight because as the story from your beginning, the opening of your book suggests, there are so many white people who seem to think that this is very much something that happened in the past and that we've gotten over as a society. Yeah, precisely. Right. And I think the editors at The New Yorker thought the exact same thing (laughs) because I was like, I think there's like a big story to tell here. And they kept saying like, no, you know, it's not timely. And I'm like, have you not turned on your television? Did you not see the Academy Awards in 2012 when Billy Crystal, the host, was in blackface performing as Sammy Davis Jr.? That was 2012. How can you tell me it's not always relevant? Like, and it was way back then argument is a way of kind of shoring up that sense of white innocence. You can't say that there's something wrong with my heart or my intentions because I wanted to celebrate Sammy Davis Jr. or whoever it was that you're impersonating through blackface. (laughs) And one of the, right, I talk about Megyn Kelly's defense of, one of the housewives of, I think it's the housewife of New York. I'm not sure which one, but Delessis. And she, for Halloween, dresses up as Diana Ross in blackface with a large Afro wig. And people were immediately like, oh no, girl, oh no. And Megyn Kelly was like, who doesn't want to be Diana Ross for a day? <laughs> which I think is like the tagline for white innocence. <laughs> the Countess. Yes, that is the Real Housewives of New York. Um, So you're touching upon it already, but yeah, how does white innocence get weaponized in this way? Again, I think this was also at the root of what happened at my son's school, was that there's this like, either you plead, I don't know the history, and so that means I'm innocent, Or you say, I was celebrating Black culture or a Black individual, so that means I'm innocent too. When I ask throughout the book, my brown child, who was William Shakespeare for his project, never considered putting on whiteface. It never would have occurred to him or to me. 
or to anyone I know that that would have been appropriate. So what's, is he less innocent? Is he celebrating Shakespeare in a less real or authentic way? Like, so I use that question throughout the book to kind of get at the sense of like white innocence is like this form or proclamations of white innocence are a form of white privilege that black and brown people don't have access to. And we certainly don't have access to that when we're teenagers, unarmed teenagers who are shot by police in the street, right? Like there's no assumption of black or brown innocence in those moments. And nor would there be an assumption of black or brown innocence if my son had appeared as Shakespeare in whiteface. I think people would have been appalled. So that's just about how power is structured around race in our society. It has long, long roots. Those roots are still continuing into this 21st century. They're not over and done with. I do want to talk about that a little bit because we're talking about modern examples of blackface that are happening today. But I'm wondering if you could talk about the history of blackface in the U.S., if there is a beginning to the history and how you feel we got here. Yeah, so I think people want blackface to be an American invention, but it's not. And so to get us to the U.S. history, I have to start way before then. And is that okay, Rebecca, if I go back further? You go off as much as you want. (laughs) (laughs) So part of what I do in the book is trace how Black characters on stage from the first, on English-speaking stages, the first Black and Brown characters were always created to be performed by white actors in racial prosthetics, whether that's makeup or wigs or fake noses or costumes, et cetera, like the whole getup. That stems to the medieval religious performance history when fallen angels were frequently depicted in black makeup and they're therefore making the damned look black. But when we get the first non-religious plays on stage in the English-speaking world in Shakespeare's lifetime, all these black and brown characters, because of course, this is a moment of great expansion in the world. We've got the trade routes are opening up, the Americas, the Far East, the Near East, all of these different cultures and races and religions were being represented on Shakespeare's stage, which of course was called The Globe. And those parts were always performed by white actors in makeup. So you jump ahead to the U.S. colonies And Shakespeare's plays, of course, were the first plays to be staged in the U.S. And Othello was one of the most popular plays in the early American theater. Merchant of Venice, by the way, is the first Shakespearean play staged in the U.S. But Othello had this huge resurgence in the late 18th century and very early 19th century. And so the actors who, and the New York stages and the London stages were deeply connected in the 19th century, where you see actors traveling back and forth between them. We have several English actors who were doing these kind of rapid style character switches, character impersonations that included accents and costumes and different physical transformations. Charles Matthews, the English actor who popularized this, when he visited the U.S. in 1822, saw Black Americans for the first time 
created a new play called A Trip to America, in which he plays Black characters. And the archival materials that we have from those performances look as if he may have performed them in racial prosthetics. Now, Many scholars debate whether or not that's the birth of blackface minstrelsy. To me, it doesn't matter. It's part of the blackface tradition that goes back to the Middle Ages. But then right around this moment, we do get the first minstrel performances. And the one that's usually credited as being the first is T.D. Rice's 1830 performance, Jump Jim Crow in Kentucky. And his story was that he was watching an enslaved man who was the property of a man named Crow. And enslaved people, according to Rice, were often called Daddy and then the last name of their owner. So he was called Daddy Crow. And he said he watched this man do a little song and dance in a barn. And he thought it was so funny that he wanted to do that song and dance on a stage. Now, a lot of scholars who talk about this as the birth of minstrelsy think of it as coming kind of fully formed out of the head of Jove from nowhere. But in fact, of course, it's related to Matthews, who knew Rice, and all these other actors who were doing these kind of more traditional blackface performances, whether they're Shakespearean or in new plays. So it only was a step farther to create this new performance tradition that was explicitly denigrating blackness. <laughs> that was a long-winded answer for you, Rebecca. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I think it's all very important because I think something that you've highlighted in that history is that there's so many variations or different forms of performing blackness. And I think what's also clear from that story, as you said, is that it's not an American invention that it has a legacy in all these different places. And I think it manifests so differently Outside of the U.S., I think the most popular example of this outside of the U.S. is probably like Black Peter, the character from the Netherlands. The sort of white innocent defense there is that it's part of their Christmas tradition to don blackface around Christmas time. And their relationship to Black people living in the Netherlands is different than living in the States, obviously. But I'm wondering how you feel if you could answer to like those different variations of performing Blackness. Yeah, and I think that's a great example. I think what the history that I'm uncovering here, what unites blackface minstrelsy, which many assume to be an American creation, what unites that with all these other performances of blackness that use racial prosthetics but may not necessarily fall into this specific performance genre of the minstrelsy what unites them all is an assumption that performing black and brown characters and even creating black and brown characters is a white property. And I think that's what unites the Black Pete tradition as well. And a Dutch colleague and I, who's also a Shakespeare scholar, Kun Ihes, we've written a piece together about Black Pete, but we also did a special edition of a journal on blackface performances around Othello in the globe. So we have examples from Japan and Italy and all over. And so again, I think there is a way that these are all united, even though their cultural traditions and histories may be slightly nuanced in different ways. 
what unites them is that performing these characters is something that you can take on, that it's a property that doesn't necessarily belong to Black and brown people themselves. Talking about performing Blackness as a form of white property is obviously intricately linked to the history of slavery. What do you feel the ties are between Blackface and violence in that case? Like, how does one go to the other? I think it's a great question. And I think it does speak to the fact that when I was writing and George Floyd was murdered, I saw the connection, right? That if you assume that performing Blackness as a white property then Blackness can be completely objectified, dehumanized, and killed, right? Like there is a vile thread that connects the violence perpetuated on Black people to this assumption that Black characters are owned by white people. Now, I've gotten some pushback since I've been doing a lot of interviews for the book, and I've gotten some pushback from people saying, but there are all these famous Black actors, don't you think they own their performances? And yes, of course. And I work very closely with a lot of theater companies and a lot of actors of color in the US and the UK. And I think they're all amazingly talented and have had less opportunities than their white colleagues, precisely because the kinds of characters that are created aren't necessarily created in the same three-dimensional way that white characters are. Like white actors never come to me and say, I don't know how to perform whiteness authentically. <laughs> That's not a something that registers on an actor's mind. Now they may have trouble tapping into a specific character or a time period or whatever, but there's no anxiety about performing whiteness by white actors. Mm. Same cannot be said for actors of color. They have a lot of anxiety about like, how do I make this real? Do I want to make this real? Is this a damaging character? Is this an uplifting character? Like, you know, like there's a lot of anxiety about performing Blackness if you're a Black actor. And that's because of this long tradition. Right. And as you said in our previous discussion about Othello and just now that there's so few roles for Black actors to choose between that they often have to take on these roles that maybe feel really uncomfortable or even traumatize them in some way. And you talk about this a little bit in the book with 12 Years a Slave. So two things. One, what is the impact of blackface on black actors today? And then on the flip side of that, when they have to embody the black experience on stage, when they have such little to choose from, what are the performances? What is the experience of performing blackness in a way that reinforces their trauma? Right. So, I mean, I think because this history of Black characters and performing Black characters has been a white property, it doesn't mean that once you have Black playwrights or once you have Black screenwriters or producers and directors that that legacy is like over with and done with. And so I track the way that this Blackface tradition impacts the types of characters that are created and the types of scenarios that are created when Black people are at the helm. And I boil it down to kind of three performance types. And one is this kind of going back into the comedic, I call it like kind of mimetic, making fun of Black characters. And I talk about Tyler Perry's films as falling into a type of minstrelsy, even though he writes, produces, and directs them himself and performs in them. 
But the other tradition is a kind of exhibition of the Black body as a way of getting it. One is, I think, from the Renaissance, there was a ton of exhibition of Black bodies in royal households, in aristocratic households, where we have documents about like tables of food being pulled in by naked Africans, because, of course, what would make your household look more sumptuous than having an enslaved person pull your food in. And again, we'd like to think that once we have control of production, that that goes away. But in fact, I think it morphs itself into a different type of exhibition of the body, which is look at my body and see the pain that has been inflicted upon it. And 12 Years, I think, is an excellent example. Again, Black director, Black screenwriter, Black stars, and still it, the camera inhabits a white gaze on the Black body. It's so disturbing. And then the third performance tradition that I think comes out of this is the, what I call the authenticity blues. It's like, am I Black enough? And, you know, and it, this is usually comes out again in comedic traditions. And, and I look closely at Black AF, the television show, to say that here's a show, again, created by Black people for Black people, and the dominant plot arc is about, like, am I true to my Blackness? There is not a white corollary. There's not a white comedic tradition that says, am I true to my whiteness? Like, you're trying to imagine what that would be. And it's kind of funny if we actually tried to write that script from a white point of view, because it just wouldn't actually make sense. But it makes complete sense in this performance tradition. Right. And I think the absurdity to that is just the history of treating whiteness as the default, that it's not, it's not been treated as like an actual identity in the same way because it's just connoted with power and with being human right like white being human exactly it's human and so like then you get all the complexities that come with being human whereas blackness that's not the ideological structure that we come out of like humanity was not ever thought of as being aligned with blackness when those terms were set in effect so the whole performance tradition ends up going in these haywire directions that i think is uncomfortable for both white and Black people to acknowledge. Why is it uncomfortable for Black people to acknowledge? Because I think if I talk to (laughs) the people who made 12 Years or Tyler Perry and said, look at how you are falling into these Renaissance performance traditions, they would be horrified. And that's the place where I am hoping this book opens up a whole, I mean, I hope it ends blackface, period. But I do hope it opens up a way for us to think about who owns black performance. And if we can end blackface, and if we can kind of rewire our thinking about what it is to perform blackness and who owns black performance, that maybe then we could create some new performance genres. I do point to a few examples that I think go there. I think, for example, Tiffany Haddish in Girls Trip, her character is so zany and unconcerned with what people think about her, whether it's a white gaze or a male gaze or even her friends, that that seemed to be something that was like, oh my God, here's what we could be going forward. I mean, I hope we get that kind of like unconcerned with the gaze going forward. I know that you wrote this book very recently, but it makes me think about how in our previous conversation, we recorded that conversation like 
two weeks before George Floyd was murdered. And it obviously put the entire conversation in an entire, like a different lens. Do you feel, I mean, you're bringing up very modern examples of contemporary blackface, but maybe an example of how we can move forward or past it. But do you feel like anything has happened since you finished the book that would make you reflect or want to add to it? Well, I mean, I do think, I mean, I'm on the boards of several theater companies and I'm on staff at one theater company. And I will say the conversations that I've been a part of in those spaces would not have occurred before the murder of George Floyd. So I do think that there are dialogues that are opening up now that had been forestalled. I also think now if I went to the New Yorker and said, hey, I want to do a piece on blackface, if the editor came back and said, well, it's not timely enough, I could rebut that more easily with what's happened in our current moment. So I do feel like there's a way that conversations about race have moved a little bit and acknowledgement about structural racism and what that entails. But of course, there is also a gigantic backlash. I am not immune from racist attacks, sexist attacks. I mean, I get emails regularly that are pretty horrifying, (laughs) you know? So I think there is the possibility, but I think here's where I'm most cynical. I think people living in 1968 and working in the Black arts movement also thought that it was going to change then. And it's almost as if that didn't happen. That moment didn't happen, right? Like, I'm sure Tina Fey knows about the Black arts movement. I'm sure she thinks it's great art was created then. That did not stop her from writing four episodes of her television show that included blackface. So that's when I'm most cynical. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's like a dark place to go. But (laughs) I try not to stay there too long. I mean, there's no point in trying to force it to be an optimistic outlook if you feel like, and I also feel that there are just so many creepy, disturbing parallels between the 60s and what's happening in our world today. So there's this great book and collective called Black Futures that was kind of collecting all this amazing Black art in different media. And one of them was a young woman who put up a billboard in Pittsburgh And the billboard said, there are Black people in the future. And the owner of the building took down the billboard because he said it was too incendiary. I think that's related to Blackface. And again, about this notion about what is a Black identity, what's a Black person, who gets to perform what that is. And once you're in this kind of dehumanizing space where Black characters are just characters. They're not representative of real people or real identities or real complexities. Once you see that enough, the idea that there are Black people in the future probably is disturbing to you because you're like, oh no, this is my property. And so I think that's something I'd like us to to think about. Like there are Black people in the future and I hope there is not Blackface in the future. Well, thank you so much for coming back on, Ayana, and talking about your incredible book. So I will make sure that to post in the show notes about the book, you can find it on Bloomsbury's website. But I think that's a really great point to end on as well. Thanks so much, Rebecca. It's really a pleasure talking to you. 